Let's invite uh, God to speak to us through His Word here this morning. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what? Shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So we have been studying the book of Micah since the beginning of July, and today I'm hoping to bring some final reflections and lessons from this little book of the Old Testament. And we began by looking at <coughs> the charges that the prophet Micah was bringing against the tribes of Israel, who were divided between the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And on God's behalf, Micah told them that, well, God could no longer be patient with them. They had turned to idolatry. They'd gone to the corrupting, they'd corrupted their religion with the worship of foreign gods and the disturbing practices that came with that. They'd allowed injustice to thrive in the land. The rich and the powerful were robbing people of their homes and their land. They were taking advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. And because of this, God would not protect them from their enemies. Israel and much of Judah would soon be destroyed, and Jerusalem would later fall as well. But as we began to talk about last week, Micah is not full of bad news. The prophet's message regularly turns to hope for the future. And so I'm going to show the second half of the Bible Project's video about the book of Micah as kind of a, a bit of a reminder of what we explored last week and to bring a little more context for what we'll talk about this week. Uh, so here's it's a clip that lasts about four minutes, uh, but it's, it's wonderfully illustrated and it, it packs in a lot of the key things that, the themes of this, this book and what it's for and where it's going. So I'll get uh, Lucy to adjust those lights and pull up that video and she's ready. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. 
The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. And I'll say... One more, one more time, just in case, that the, the folks at the Bible Project do really good work and all their videos and other contents available online for free anytime, so you can learn about 
all sorts of books of the Bible and any other topic uh, from a, a good source of the well-put-together stuff that way. So that's the, that's the pattern of the book of Micah, that there will be destruction because of this great sin in the land, but there is still hope because God forgives, because God restores, and because it's God's plan to save this world, and it's, He's going to carry out that plan despite His people's unfaithfulness. God's grace is greater than our biggest failures or the worst evils of this world. So as we come to the end of our look at this book, I want to reflect on two aspects of its overall message. First, that hope that Micah offers and how it points to Jesus. And second, what this book tells us about how to live in response to God's love and faithfulness to us. So we'll start with the first side of that and the hope side of it. You know, it's not unusual for me to be aware of lots of challenging things happening in different people's lives, but this week felt like there'd been more of that than usual, perhaps. I mean, that was even before we suddenly had all these, these floods, and I know there's quite a few who've got flooded basements and other struggles in our midst right now. Uh, an unexpected situation. But a lot of what I was encountering even before that were just those kinds of hard things that that most people will go through sooner or later. Like running out of medical options to keep you going in older age, or facing an illness that will kind of gradually take away your abilities, or continuing to grieve the loss of someone you've loved for a very long time, or facing anxiety about uh, the future, about finding your way, about providing for your family under challenging circumstances. And sometimes there is reason for hope in that hard situation because it might change, it might improve. There's an opportunity to, to pray for that good outcome and to offer a helping hand. And other times, apart from a miracle, the likes of which I haven't yet seen, there's not much to be done except face that hard reality. And this is where faith, where our own faith and where the encouraging faith of others becomes more precious than ever. Part of what Micah is about is facing the hard reality of loss. He talks about destruction of nations, loss of homes and lives, the shattering of a people's sense of who they are as those set apart by God. So many hard things, and there's no avoiding them. But the prophet offers God's words of hope that this is not the end of the story that those who are faithful will be regathered, that they will see God's good kingdom, that they will know peace like nothing in this present world has to offer. And I mentioned last week that the book of Micah makes it into the Christmas story because chapter 5 contains that passage which points to Bethlehem as the birthplace of the new king, the one who will restore the line of David, who will rule with righteousness, the Messiah. And so for Christians, that hope is realized in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in John chapter 14, Jesus' disciples are also wrestling with some hard truths about what's going to happen next. Somebody was going to betray Jesus. And then Jesus, he said, was going to be lost to them. He was going to go somewhere that they could not follow, at least not right away, he said. They were, their job was to stay and minister to a world that would be hostile, in many cases, to the good news of Jesus. This work would lead them to the heights of joy and to witnessing miracles, but at least for some of them, it would also mean imprisonment, torture, hardship, and death. And then what? And Jesus told them, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that you may be where I am also. And then Thomas chimed in. He said, Lord, actually, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I don't quite get it. And we don't know where Jesus might call us in life if we choose to trust him. We also rely on hope for what it means to pass from life to death to new life. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. We cannot know what hard things we will face or how we'll overcome them. And there are aspects of faith that will always be mysteries for us. But we can know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, we can know the Father as well, he says. We can know Jesus through the pages of our Bible, which show us what a human being ought to be, overflowing with love and compassion and self-sacrifice, with courage and with passion. And we can know Jesus personally, though this is the more mysterious side of faith a knowing that comes about through prayer, through worship, through obedience, or perhaps through God's act of reaching out to us. And the deeper we know, the greater our hope, especially when we face hard realities. Because we know the one who will usher in a beautiful new reality and who has promised that he will gather us there. And that's where we move from hope to response. Because uh, you cannot know God in this way and be unmoved by that. You cannot have faith in Jesus who loved this world enough to lay down his life for it and then refuse to try to also love that world as well. And so once again, the book of Micah is a very good companion to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament in showing us what it looks like to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Micah, in this, today's passage, first of all, tells us what faith isn't that it's, it's not performative. It's not about public displays like the many wicked people of his time who would bring these impressive sacrifices to the temple as if that meant something while their hearts were turned away from God and his justice. Right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And if it's not clear here, the answer is no. Or maybe hell no, if we want to add a little bit more emphasis into that there. I mean, bribery might have worked on the rulers of Israel in those days, but it does not work on God. You don't deal with your sin by giving God gifts. You deal with it through repentance. You don't please God by making impressive-looking sacrifices you please God by living in faithfulness to his commands. And that's where we reach Micah's most famous passage. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so in practical terms, we could just think for a moment about what those things mean. Right? To act justly. And that includes, on a personal level, fair dealings with others, honesty, decency, 
It means ex- avoiding exploiting others, to not take advantage of them, not benefit at someone else's expense. I think that includes promoting equality, fighting for the idea that all people are, in fact, made in the image of God, just as Genesis tells us, and all, therefore, deserve to be treated with dignity and respect in this world. To act justly, I think, also requires the long-term thinking that our, our culture, our society, our politics struggle with, whether that's the environment or the economy or just how we handle our own family's affairs or, or the future of our church not just think about right now and next month and next year, but about what state I can leave these things in for the next generation and the generation after that. Because so ultimately, acting justly has a lot to do with the common good, because it's not about what I can get or what I prefer or what I can get away with. It's about what is the most loving choice that I can make. So to act justly, and then to love mercy. You know, Jesus was once asked how many times that someone ought to forgive someone else, and he told them, you know, and the person said, you know, seven times, is that enough? And Jesus famously said, no, try 70 times seven. And he didn't mean, like, do the math and then cut them off at that point. He just meant there's not, there's not an end point. You don't cap it if someone comes to you repentant. And so to love mercy is to desire that forgiveness happen, that relationships be restored, that, that wholeness you know, that beautiful Hebrew word of shalom, which means peace, but also harmony. Desiring the good of the other, even when that person has wronged you, even when that person has made foolish choices. To do the hard thing Jesus asked us, to love our enemies, not stooping to their level in retaliation. To build bridges in a fracturing society by being people who are slow to judge and quick to listen, as the book of James says. These are ways we can love mercy. And then finally, to walk humbly with God. And I think there's a, humility is a huge topic. There's a lot of different ways we can come at that. But I think part of that is the desire to learn and grow, to remember that we do not have all the answers, that we are still a very long way from the mature person of faith that we would like to be. I also think that walk word is important there, to walk, not run. And to, to walk means to me that There must be time for prayer, for contemplation. And at best, I'm a mediocre example of this in my phase of life, I confess. But as the world keeps accelerating, we need to learn to walk. To walk humbly also means trusting God because we don't know it all, and therefore we sometimes need to do what He asks even when we don't understand why. And to also recognize that His way is is right in all times. To walk humbly means to never slip into that, this dangerous mentality that we've become superior to somebody else, either because I've made wise choices, I've followed God well in my mind, or even because my circumstances seem better, so therefore I must be blessed and others must not be. I must be doing a better job. The world is not that, that simple. We don't work ourselves into a superior position over anybody. And lastly, humility, I think sometimes it's misunderstood because people think it's about being timid in some way. And that's, that's really not it. Humility has this compellingly gentle confidence about it. Because I, in walking humbly with my God, I can say, I have found my way. My God has won. My future is secure. And so I'm not worried about how you might differ from me or wrong me, or offend me, I'm interested in what might help you find your way to what's good. 
Or maybe we could sum all three of these instructions up this way, to say what pleases God? Good character and faithful service. Right? Becoming the good person who then naturally lives in the way that blesses others. Now, can you do this on your own? No. On our own, we may not do any better than the corrupt people of Israel and Judah that Micah wrote against. We certainly won't bear the resemblance to Jesus that we are called to grow into. And this is why the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Because the fruit of the Spirit are the visible expression of good character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then the gifts of the Spirit enable our faithful service. Teaching, healing, prophecy, like we talked about with the kids, discernment, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy, and so on. And so that's kind of my bringing together of Micah and the gospel. That both of them speak to us about how to hold on to hope and the mysteries of faith even in darker times. And both of them give us a beautiful vision of who God has created us to be and the world that God will restore for us to enjoy. Fortunately, as people living on our side of the resurrection, we also have the help of the Holy Spirit to transform us. The assurance that God will complete that work and make us fully human one day as Jesus was. So let me combine old and new again with two more readings from Scripture. One that we've read and one that I haven't yet. So he has shown you, O human, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then to read from Romans 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So last, I want to leave you with those words of Scripture and a prayer that came my way this week. It came from a, a theologian named Reinhold uh, Niebuhr, who passed away over 50 years ago, and yet seemed to see very clearly the way that Western society was heading and the challenges that would come with that. And so I think that Micah would very much approve of this one. So let's just pause, just allow our kind of weary senses to rest for a moment and, and listen to, to this prayer offered for our benefit. Lord, we pray this day, mindful of the sorry confusion of our world. Look with mercy upon this generation of your children, so steeped in misery of their own contriving so far strayed from your ways and so blinded by passions. We pray for the victims of tyranny, that they may resist oppression with courage. We pray for wicked and cruel men whose arrogance reveals to us what the sin of our own hearts is like when it has conceived and brought forth its final fruit. We pray for ourselves who live in peace and quietness, that we may not regard our good fortune as proof of our own virtue or rest content to have our ease at the price of other men's sorrows and tribulations. We pray for all those who have some vision of your will, despite the confusions and the betrayals of human sin, that they may humbly 
and, be, and resolutely plan for and fashion the foundations of a just peace between men, even while they seek to preserve what is fair and just among us against the threat of malignant powers. Amen.